chair uh, her ministry was because I, I wanted you all uh, to be aware that God's path for missions can look incredibly different for different people. Um, I've, I've heard testimony of, of families that were well-established, and, and even their, their children were kind of in their teen years when they decided to go on the mission field. And so a lot of times we think of missionaries as young family, you know, young before you have children, and you kind of graduate from college, and God has called you to go on the mission field, and, and uh, God can use different people in different ways uh, to go and to, uh, to serve Him uh, in that way. Uh, and, and send people out from uh, their local churches to to um, to serve him in that way. Take your Bibles, please, and open them to Exodus chapter six. Diana, again, thank you so much. And please, she's got a table set up here in the back with some prayer cards on it. And uh, I invite you to go and visit with her after the service this morning. Exodus chapter six. We're going to jump into that. Yes, children. I'm sorry, I always forget to do it. Children are dismissed for children's church at this time, and actually, Miss Diana is going to be going. She's our special guest speaker for children's church this morning. So, uh, kiddos, you're dismissed at this time. Uh, talk about God moving people uh, into missions and moving them away from their local church. And um, unfortunately, I have the uh, the uh, opportunity again to announce to our local church that God is taking a couple of our families uh, here and moving them on uh, to to other places and other other ministries. And so, uh, Ronnie and Courtney Dyer um, are actually going to be here within the next month or so, relocating back to East Texas. Um, I tried everything in my power to. I just said no, you can't. And uh, no, I'm kidding. I didn't. But. Um, Lord's opened up a work opportunity. It looks like God's opening up a work opportunity for both of them uh, to relocate back down there. They'll be closer to family, um, uh, well, very close to family. And so Ronnie has uh, been offered a job down there, and Courtney has some uh, job opportunities that she's going to be going this this week uh, to go and interview for. And Ronnie went down this last week and interviewed and um, and I said, that's fine. As long as you leave little Ronnie in Genesis, you are welcome to go wherever God would have you. And so, but I have a feeling they're going to want to take little Ronnie and no. <laughs> Ronnie's like, that's not a bad deal, man. So anyway, uh, we, Lord willing, on May 30th are going to be giving an official goodbye to them. And that Sunday evening, we'll be having a fellowship uh, to celebrate how God has used them here at Liberty Baptist Church. And so there's a lot of things I want to say about the Dyer family, but that's all I'm going to say for now. And then um, God is also moving uh, Diadne and Charlene. Uh, they are going to be relocating down. Diadne's sister lives in the greater Dallas area, and she's starting a business down there. And uh, Diadne's been down there the last couple of weeks visiting with them and praying about whether or not God would have them uh, relocate down there. And he called me. Uh, on uh, Friday or Saturday and visited with me about that, and God is going to be moving them. They've got, obviously, a lot of family and friends down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and so they're going to be almost really about the same time that you guys are moving. Uh, they're going to be moving as well, so we're going to be... to preach from. Um, and so on that same weekend, we'll be uh, celebrating the Quine family as well, and we'll have a fellowship with them. So we'll be, uh, and I, I did uh, tell Diadne the same thing, that uh, that he can leave and maybe Charlene can leave, but Eliana has to stay. I said, remember how in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Isaac was given to the priest to be cared for as a, as a gift? Uh, and I said, that's fine with me. We'll take Eliana. And he <laughs> He kind of laughed and said, well, we will pray about what God might have. Actually, the first thing he says was, was um, what, you want her so that we can go and make more? And uh, I said, well, I have no doubt that you are going to go <laughs> and make more. Um, but uh, I anyway, he, he said that we, he, would, he and Charlene would have to pray about that as well. So I have a feeling they're going to do the same thing and take uh, Eliana with them as well. So uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I know Job is the one who said that, and I think that uh, those, um, those words are true, even when we consider um, how blessed we are when God brings people here. And um, he always takes the ones that I don't want to leave. There are others of you that I would be more than happy for God to take and move somewhere else. I'm just kidding. I'm, 
I can say that because there isn't any of you that um, I would want God to do that with. Exodus chapter 6, we're going to be diving in together here in just a moment to this passage. I, I keep saying it because I keep meaning it, um, that uh, I am loving preaching through the book of Exodus. I, I can't remember a time when I've had more fun studying during the week and then preaching um, through a book of the Bible uh, together, uh, looking through the book of the, uh, a book of the Bible uh, Exodus has been a great surprise for me. I knew it was going to be good. Um, it's been even even better than I anticipated. So that's one more time. Let me pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together as we look into his word. Father, we are thankful. Uh, for, there's just so many things that are already our hearts are full of this morning. Lord, we're thankful for hearing how you um, have and are using uh, Diana there in Togo and God necessary for her to uh, be used uh, long term there in the country of Togo. Lord, we we do pray already. We begin praying for uh, the Dyer family and the Quine family as they are uh, relocating. Lord, there's just so many big things, big decisions that are going to um, have to be made there. But uh, Lord, you have been clearly leading these families. Both of these families are families that love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they are in pursuit of of you. And so, God, as they continue to pursue you, Lord, make uh, way their way uh, clear before them. Bring them into good local churches that will feed them and local churches in which they can continue to use their gifts and their abilities um, to minister for you. So we pray for those families. And now, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that uh, you would uh, that, that you would use your word in our hearts to affect us and to change us and to strengthen us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of the time when we hear someone say the phrase, don't you know who I am? It, it's coming from a person who is kind of proud or arrogant, and they, they kind of want you to know who they are, right? And whether it's because of their their uh, popularity or because of their finances or because of their position or because of their power. They look at you and say, hey, look, don't you don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? And usually when someone says a phrase like that, immediately we think not only do I not know who you are, I don't want to know who you are. If you're going to if you're going to communicate with me that way, I don't want to know who I am. And yet this morning, as we look into God's word, we're actually going to see that God himself responds to Moses and Aaron and and through them to the children of Israel with a phrase almost exactly like this. But when God says it, the what God is communicating is something more along these lines. Don't you know who I am? And, and when God says it, he's offering himself as the answer to the problem. Usually when some proud, arrogant, rich person says, don't you know who I am? They're actually becoming more of a problem in your life than they are solving a problem in your life. And yet when God says those same types of words... God is actually offering himself as the answer. Now, as a run-up to chapter 6, we need to back up into the earlier portions of Exodus. And let's, let's take a moment to remember where we've been in the book of Exodus. We find the nation of Israel in slavery in the country of Egypt. Remember, Joseph has, in, has come into Egypt and his family follows him into Egypt. And the, the nation of Israel multiplies and becomes a great nation there in the country of Egypt. But they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and, and we're told that God, that God hears the cry of Israel, and he sees the problems with Israel, and he remembers his promises to the nation of Israel, and God chooses out this unlikely person, Moses, and he rescues him in the Nile River through the, through the little ark basket, and he grows up in Pharaoh's home, and then he kills an Egyptian um, taskmaster and runs off into the wilderness of Midian. And yet God goes to him again and finds him there in the wilderness and shows up to him in the presence of this burning bush with this message of redemption. And God then takes Moses and Aaron, his brother, 
and they now go before Pharaoh. This is now back in chapters 4 and 5. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and they say, the one true God, the I Am, says that you're supposed to let the nation of Israel go. And Pharaoh says, who is this God? I don't know who this God is. And, and in fact, uh, you have too much time on your hands, Moses and the children of Israel. And so I want you to keep making the same amount of bricks that you're making for me to fund and, and, and fuel my building campaigns. And in fact, you've got too much time on your hands, so I want you to keep making the same number of bricks. But instead of us providing you with the straw to make the bricks, now you've got to go and harvest your own straw and make the same number of bricks. And now, after God has showed up to Moses with this message of redemption, and Moses goes to the people of Israel with this message of redemption, and Moses walks into Pharaoh and expects, even though God's told him Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, Moses walks in expecting something other than what happens. Pharaoh makes life worse for the nation of Israel. And the Israelites are in greater trouble now than they had been before Moses and Aaron show up. And the foremen of the people of Israel, which are Israelites themselves, they're kind of like this mid-level manager between the Egyptian taskmasters and the people of Israel, they go into Pharaoh and they say, hold on, like, why are you making things far worse for us? And they have this meeting with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh again says, I'm not going to reduce verse 19 of chapter 5, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. you got to keep making the same number of bricks. Now, let's pick up in verse 20 of chapter 5, verse 20. We're moving into chapter 6, but we're going we're gonna to intro it by way of chapter 5, verse 20. They, the, these, these foremen of the people of Israel, who were Israelites themselves, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So here are these Israelite managers, and they said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, Moses and Aaron wanted to be the leaders. Moses and Aaron wanted to show up as kind of the, you know, the saviors sent from God to bring this good news to Israel, and instead what's happening is these managers in Israel are looking at Moses and Aaron saying, you've made a stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. You, in fact, you've actually given him a sword with which to kill us. In verse 22, Moses does something that on one hand is good and on the other hand is bad. He turns to the right person turns to the right person with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So here Moses is asking a question of God and making some accusations of God. But Moses is interacting with the one true God personally and directly. Now chapter 6, but the Lord said to Moses, and now Mo God, the great I am, is going to answer Moses' accusations. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. But God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, did not make myself known to them. I also established a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from, the sla from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to you for a possession. Say it with me. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses. Why not? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king King of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The main point this morning is this. The great I am will save his people. The great I am will save his people. Now, I tried to emphasize it as I read through the passage. What was the phrase that I emphasized four times as I read through this passage? I am the Lord. So as God is answering Moses' question, right? Moses says, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? And God answers Moses' questions indirectly and primarily with this answer. I am the Lord. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Brothers and sisters, most of the time, our problem is that we don't know who God is. We think the problem is the circumstances we're in. But the circumstances we're in aren't actually the problem. The problem is we don't know God in the circumstances that we're in. I'm going to talk more about that here in a few minutes. First of all, let's walk through this passage. Number one, I've got four points this morning. Number one is this, I am the Lord. God is saying, I am the Lord. God's answer to Moses is, I am the Lord. And as God is answering Moses, he is also communicating with us about who he is. Um, So let me walk through the four points. First of all, God is going to say, I am the Lord. Number two will be, I will save you. Number three, you won't believe on your own. And number four, I will save you anyway. So we're going to look at these comments, these statements from God as we walk through Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 this morning. I am the Lord. In response to Moses' question, God himself answers by reminding Moses who he, God, is. In verse 2, if you're a Bible marker, underliner, here here we go. In verse 2, the end of verse 2 says, I am the Lord. In the middle of verse 6, or toward the beginning of verse 6, it says, I am the Lord. In the middle of verse 7, I am the Lord. And at the end of verse 8, I am the Lord. And as God is replying to Moses, The the beginning of his comments and at the end of his comments, he is saying, I am the Lord. He begins his comments in verse 2. He ends his comments in verse 8. And God is saying in both of these places, in in, in all through his response to Moses is this, I am the Lord. And here God is again reminding Moses and the people of Israel who he is. And brothers and sisters, as you read through this book of Exodus, and really as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the Scriptures, God is over and over and over again reminding His people of who He is. Because that's the answer to our problems. It was the answer for Israel's problems. It is the answer for our problems as well. God reminds us who He is. Don't you know who I am? Now, if... Let's say that you were in financial trouble and, and, and Bill Gates came to your house, but you didn't know who Bill Gates was or whoever the wealthy guy of the day is. And, and he comes to your house and you're in financial trouble and you're like, man, I owe 500 bucks this month. And if I don't get that 500 bucks paid, I'm in big trouble. And you're like, man, I don't know where I'm going to come up with that money. It's 500 bucks. And Bill Gates shows up and and says, um, hey, I I can take care of that for you. And you don't know who Bill Gates is. 
and you go, really? I mean, it's $500. And Bill Gates is like, are you kidding me? $500? Like, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even realize that money has come or gone from my bank account until it's in the, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, I got this. And in that moment, it would be appropriate for Bill Gates to look at you and say, don't you know who I am? Like, don't you know who I am? Like, I, I got this. I can take care of you. Th- this $500, I, like, I won't even realize it. In fact, you know, and he pulls it out and gives you the $500. And takes care of it for you because of who he is, because of his capability, right? And we could use that illustration of, across just a number of different ways, a number of different platforms to remind us that there are people who have abilities and their ability does take care of a problem that you might have. And their response to you with, don't you know who I am, is the right response for you in that moment to go, oh, okay, no, actually, I don't know who you are. Tell me who you are, and then you find out who they are, they are, and you realize, well, my problem is taken care of. This is what God is doing with Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel. In verse 3, it says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Mine, but by my name, the Lord, or as we've seen here in Exodus, I am, I did not make myself known to them. And there's some dispute. You can look in the, in the commentaries and the theologians will discuss whether or not prior to this moment in history, whether or not God had ever used the, the name I am as a way to reveal himself to his people. You have to remember Exodus, uh, Exodus is written by Moses, uh, you know, many years later. And, and so, you know, whether or not uh, exactly what moment in time the name I am came on the scene is unclear. But what is clear is that God is doing something new in the lives and the experiences of his people that he hasn't done before. And what he's getting ready to say is, it's almost like God is flexing a little bit right here and saying, get ready. Get ready. I'm I'm going to show myself to you in a way that you've never seen before. I'm getting ready to do this Exodus thing that will for the rest of eternity be one of the primary things I've done. And most theologians would say, apart from Christ's work on the cross, the exodus of the people of God from the nation of Israel is the most significant moment in salvation history. There is a reason why this story is repeated over and over and over and over and over again. God is getting ready to show himself in a new and unique way. And he's going to show himself in deeper ways to the people of Israel. He is the Lord. And he says, not only I am the Lord, but throughout verses 6, 7, and 8, over and over and over again, he uses this phrase, I will. In fact, seven times, God himself says, I will. Now, if Bill Gates comes to you and says, I am the richest man in the world, I don't know if he's the richest man in the world. Who's the richest man in the world right now? Do we know? Who? Bezos? Okay. So Bezos comes to you and says, "Um, I am the richest man in the world. And you go, I am not the richest man in the world. Like, so so what, right? You have a lot of money. I don't have that money. But then if Bezos looks at you and says, I am the richest man in the world and I will pay off all your debts, buy you a new vehicle, buy you a new home, take care of your kid's college, take care of your kid's kid's college. In fact, I got you covered for generations to come. Now, the I am becoming the I will for you, now that changes everything. And brothers and sisters, God is not only saying to his people, I am, but he's also saying, I will. And let's look at these phrases. Turn your your eyes to verse 6 here. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. The burdens... Wait, wait, you mean the burdens that just got harder after you said you were going to deliver us? I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. I, I'll buy you back with an outstretched arm. And that's the idea of, of a strong arm, a, an arm of strength, an outstretched arm. Again, I, in our modern vernacular, he's flexing. An outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will... I will take you to be my people. 
I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And again, Bible markers, just go through there and mark. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. Seven times in those three verses, the I am says I will. And brothers and sisters, that's where things should start to change for the nation of Israel. And that's where things should start to change for us. This language that God is using is language of deliverance. They feel their captivity. They feel their slavery. They're aware that they are in bondage. Do you ever feel aware of what feels almost like slavery and bondage? I think when you're honest with yourself, you have to admit it. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, when I want to do good, evil is right there present with me. It's like there's a law inside of me that, I, that when I want to do good, I do bad. And when I don't want to do bad, I do good. What, who will save me from this bondage of death? The Apostle Paul is aware of his own struggle with sin, and he describes it in terms of bondage and slavery. Here the people of Israel are keenly aware of their bondage and slavery. And this language is language of deliverance. They are promises of deliverance. God is promising what he will do. And brothers and sisters, we now as God's people, we look at these promises that he makes to the people in the book of Exodus here. And friends, we are on the other side of the cross historically. They were looking forward to a Messiah and we look back to the Messiah and the people of Israel look forward to what God will do. And we, brothers and sisters, we get to look back at what God did do. Now, there are some I wills for us in the future as well. We're going to talk, talk about that in a second. But think about all that we get to look back to as what God did do. See, these phrases here about being redeemed and, and being brought into a land and being delivered from slavery, the New Testament uses those same phrases to describe what happens to us when we're saved, when we go from being a child of wrath to a child of God. In Colossians chapter 1, and note takers write this down, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us. There's that phrase. Look, if you look in chapter 6, the word being delivered, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. There's the word redemption. The word redeemed is used here in verses 6 through 8. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Don't you know, don't you know that the early um, Christians, who many of whom were devout, uh, j- devout Jews, um, devout Israelites, and they would have been reading, listening to the preaching of Jesus, listening to the preaching of the apostles, reading the book of Colossians for the first time, and they would have known the Old Testament scriptures incredibly well. And so when they read the letter that Paul wrote to them in the city of Colossae, and he says uh, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and we've been redeemed and given forgiveness of our sins, like they would have known, oh, wait a second, that redemption language, that that um, deliverance language, like that's that's the language that's described, that's used to describe what God did for the nation of Israel, and He's doing that for us now through His Son Christ. Galatians chapter four, verse four and following. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember, these verses are talking about that we who weren't God's people are now made God's people. Well, here, receiving adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're no longer a slave you're now a son. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And again, early Christians would have read these passages, and had they had any understanding of the Old Testament, they would have known immediately, this is the language of Exodus. This is the language of God's delivering his people. 
it would immediately be clear to them. And brothers and sisters, we now look back, and we who were born enemies of God, and we were born uh, slaves to our sin, we look back at what Christ has done for us, and those who have turned from their sins and put faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, you know what it is to be delivered in an ultimate sense, delivered from your sins, delivered from your bondage. But there's still more that he will do. Here, God is telling, uh, he is telling Moses, tell them that the I am uh, is a God who will do. And we still have promises that we look forward to as well. Remember, there's still more that God will do. Revelation chapter 21, verse 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you remember that when we started uh, working our way through the book of Exodus that uh, we, we described the book of Exodus as God rescuing his people to dwell with them, to bring them into the land to dwell with him? Right. He shows up in the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and in the, the, the tabernacle as it travels around to bring them into the promised land where they're going to dwell with him forever. Brothers and sisters, that's that's the language that's being used here. We actually look forward to the day because you can just look around at the world around us and realize things aren't OK. Like things aren't OK. It's it's not easy to live life in this world. We desperately want isn't it true? Um, w- w- we desperately want peace, like just total and absolute peace. We want we want rest and peace. The, I love the beautiful Hebrew word shalom. We we want to experience in our hearts and in our minds peace. And 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 when we go on vacation, we get maybe a little hint of it, right? Like I'm on vacation. And I'm at the lake, and I'm on the boat, and the sun is shining, and the waves are rocking the boat, and it just feels, it feels great, and it feels nice. But in the back of your mind, you know, yeah, but i got to go back to work. Or, man, I, I know that there's something at work right now that's, or, or even if you're on vacation with your children, you're like, i, I got to keep an eye on them. I don't want them, they could drown while we're experiencing the peace and shalom. And friends, we don't ever, ever, not one single time, not for a split second in this life, experience that peace. There's not a moment that you experience that perfect peace and rest, that kind of shalom. And yet you know it exists and you know you were made for it. You know you want it. It's one of the reasons why we work so hard to try to insulate ourselves from any kind of other circumstances that would make life difficult for us. We know we're made for this shalom. We're made for this peace. We lean into it. Man, if I could just, if I made a little bit more money or maybe when my kids are out of the house or if I wasn't stuck in this relationship or whatever the thing, it just makes life hard. And we want this peace. We want, and we've never, ever experienced it and we're tired. And you might be in your mid-20s and you're tired. Or you might be in your mid older than that and you're tired. But when you're honest with yourself, you realize there's something that I know I was created for. There's something that I know I want. And brothers and sisters, here's what it is. It's in Revelation chapter 21, verse 21 and following. Let me read that again now. With all of that, with everything I just talked about in your minds, the, the longing to live life without any worry, without any fear, without any anxiety, without any exhaustion. That's what I want. Brothers and sisters, the I am will do this for us. There's coming a day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Imagine the, the Jews and Israelites throughout history who've read this passage. They're, they're aware that the promises that have been made throughout the centuries are being kept because the New Jerusalem is there, coming down out of heaven f- 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Shalom. And none of us have ever ever experienced it. All of us long for it and we will have it when the great I am does his final I will. We trust him for the future. We remember his faithfulness in the past. Look again at these I will statements in verses 6 through 8. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Take you to be my people. Be your God. Bring you into the land. Give it to you for possession. Friends, that's the language of salvation. Bring you out. Deliver you from slavery. Redeem you. That's the language of salvation from sins. Take you to be my people and I will be your God. This this is the language of a king with his people. Brothers and sisters, we actually do want to live under an absolute authoritative monarchy. As long as the monarch is absolutely perfect. Dictatorship is often viewed as the worst form of government in the universe. And when the dictator is a human being, it often is. But imagine if the monarch was the perfect son of God. That, that is the greatest form of government. I, in, um, I, I, I must admit, uh, you, you know that I like movies. I, um, I like the Avengers movies. And in one of the Avengers movies, Loki, the bad guy, shows up in front of everybody, right, and he slams his, his staff down, and he tells everybody to kneel. Do you remember the scene? Some of you remember the scene. He tells everybody to kneel, and he says, um, let me see here. I want to make sure I get it right. He says this, you were made to be ruled. Now, in that moment, as we listen to the bad guy say that, we want to be like, no way, man. We're going to get up and fight against that. That's, that's craziness. That's heresy. That's you know, you and that, that's, that's Hitler kind of language. But do you know that that statement itself is actually true? You were made to be ruled by the perfect, perfectly loving, perfectly sovereign, absolutely authoritative God of the universe. You were made by him to be ruled, and that is another I will. There's another I will coming where the great king of the universe will Revelation chapter 21, he will rule and reign perfectly. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. We get to the end of verse 8, and we expect Moses to have listened to the great I am talk about the great I wills. And Moses, we expect him to go, wow, dude, you're right. I I forgot who you were, right? Because here God is saying, don't you know who I am? And we expect Moses to be like, man, you're you're right. I forgot there for a moment, but I got you loud and clear now, and I'm going to go and look. Don't worry. You, we don't have to have this conversation again. We have conversations like this with our children, right? Okay, let's go over this again, right? And you have that conversation. Now, do I have to repeat this again? No, no, I understand, right? And then the next day, okay, sit down. We're going to go over this again. And you do that three or 400 times a week, and then over the course of 20 years, your children no, I'm not convinced that they ever fully understand it until they're rearing their own children, and even then, I'm not so sure. But there are conversations that we have over and over and over again, and here we already know that God's going to have this conversation over and over and over again with Moses and the people of Israel. We expect that Moses maybe should have this kind of response, but friends, you and I don't have this kind of response. Again, I'm telling you, when we look into the book of Exodus, we're looking into a mirror and we see ourselves and we see the great I am giving us the great I wills 
and we know that in our own life experience, it, it hardly takes a week, often just a day or two, and we are doubting the goodness of God. Why did you bring me here? Why did you do this evil to me? God wants us to know who he is, the great I am, and that he will save. And often when we're in trouble, the only thing we want is to get out of the trouble. We don't want to know him. We want to get out of the challenging circumstances. This brings us to point number three. You won't believe on your own. Look in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. When Moses first showed up, you remember back in chapters 4 and 5, when Moses first showed up, the people of Israel listened. And remember at the end of chapter 4, it says they believed and they worshipped. Again, Bible markers, chapter 4, verse 31. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So went upon the first message from Moses, the people believed and they worshipped. And now life has gotten harder for them. Life has gotten worse for them. And so Moses goes to them again and says, hey, I just talked with God again, and he reminded me who he is, and actually he's right, and we all need to kind of listen to him. And, and you can imagine, right, I mean, just picture with me, the Israelites stooped over, whip lashes on their back. They hear Moses and Aaron talking, and they're just like, we're not, we're not doing that again. We're not going to get our hopes up like that so that you can, you know, cut our feet out from under us again. We're, we're not playing that game again. That hurt too much, the disappointment that we talked about last week, the expectations that weren't met that we talked about last week. I'm not doing that again. The nation is disappointed. Look at the end of verse 9. Is, is th- there's, those phrases there are, are heavy. The, the people of Israel didn't listen. Why didn't they listen? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, emotional and physical weight emotional and physical problems they they are broken in their spirit and and their slavery is harsh on them and they're not listening they don't want to hear from Moses and Aaron anymore they are keenly aware that in fact since they showed up now they stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and again brothers and sisters Israel is so clearly representative of us as God's people we often come to a place where we just don't believe anymore they're God's people, but they don't believe. They don't want to listen. They, these people are unbelieving and undeserving. They don't believe in God's promises, and they don't deserve to be rescued. You'll, you'll remember that the people of Israel were, are not being rescued by God because they're such noble and virtuous and righteous people. In fact, most commentaries, and, and it, we get whiffs of it and hints of it as we read through the book of Exodus, and even we're going to see when they show up at the foot of Mount Sinai and they begin making for themselves um, uh, gods that misrepresent the one true God. These are not people who are like righteous and walking with the Lord and deserve to be rescued. These are people who often are, are involved in just total paganism and idolatry. They, they love themselves. They love Egypt. They love the gods of Egypt. They don't deserve to be rescued. So they're, they're, they're unbelieving and they're undeserving. But don't you know this to be true? God has never, ever, ever rescued someone who was deserving of rescue. Ever. Nobody. There's some pretty good people in here. You didn't deserve rescue. You were still bad enough to be separated from God for eternity. The best of us in here. God has never rescued someone because they were, because they were deserving. In fact, we're all deserving of God's wrath. Remember, Romans says there is none righteous. No, not one. We are all deserving of eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says that we don't even want God, that no one seeks after God. Again, in in Romans. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're we're described as children of wrath. In Romans chapter 5, we're described as, um, as enemies of God. So, so we're not people who basically believe and basically are deserving, and we're kind of like, God save us, we, we mostly believe in you, we just need a little bit of rescue. We have our fists, if we're acknowledging God, our fists are shaking in his face, and we're saying, we don't want you, you we are your enemy. We've got our guns pointed at God. That's how we are described as unbelievers in the Bible. Romans chapter 5 
Uh, you can go there and, and, and look on your own. Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6. So here we are, unbelieving and undeserving. So what will God do? Here he has a people that he has revealed himself to. And he has come to them saying that he will save them. And now at the end of verse 9, their spirits are broken. They're experiencing harsh slavery. And they, they're undeserving and unbelieving. No one's cooperating with God here. Pharaoh is not cooperating with God. Moses is not cooperating with God. The Israelites aren't cooperating with God. So point number three is you won't believe on your own. So if you and I were God, what would you and I do? Forget you. I mean, I, I was, I was going to show off a little bit. I was going sh- to show you my power over Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. I already told you he was going to resist at first. Like and, and now you're not even listening. I'm sending Moses and Aaron back to you again to tell you, I am the great I am, and I will rescue you. But you're not even listening to them? Hmm, I think I'll start over. But is that what God does? No, it is not what God does. Here's what's super cool. Point number four is this. I will save anyway. God, God is the great I am. He has made these promises of I will save you. Uh, The people of Israel have turned their backs on him. They are not going to believe him. But point number four, I will save anyway. Look in verses um, 10 and following. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses, again, is kind of aware of what's happening around him and says, look, The people who are supposed to believe you aren't even believing you. The last time I did this, it got way worse for them. Um, I have, like, nothing's changed. I don't have any more, like, reason to go into Pharaoh this time than I did last time, right? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Like, I don't have the ability to do this, verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. I love the matter-of-factness of of verse 13. Verse 13 is relatively emotionless. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses, listen, listen, I'm, here's your charge. Here's your job. You, I'm going to rescue them. Here's how we're going to do it. Go. I'm, I'm rescuing. I'm, I'm done playing your silly games. I'm, I'm going to rescue. See, brothers and sisters, listen, this is, this is crucial for us to understand this. God is a God. Think, think about the story, the, the stories of Genesis and Exodus. God is a God who chose one man out of many to make from him one nation in the midst of many. And then he makes a unilateral promise to that nation that they would be his people and that he would be their God, and that he will dwell with them, and that he will bring them to the land of promise. Who's in charge every single step of the way there? The great I am. The great I am is saying, I will. I will pick Abraham. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing in the scriptures to indicate to us that Abraham was like somehow a good godly man. Like he picks Abraham for his own glory. And he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you in the midst of all the other nations. This nation is the one that I'm choosing, not because they're believing, not because they're deserving, but because I'm going to glorify myself by taking rascals and knuckleheads and making them my people. And now I'm going to make some promises, but they're in no way dependent upon you. He's not saying 50% me, 50% you, and if you keep some of the covenant, then I'll keep the rest. He's saying, I'm God. I'm making you my people. I'm going to bring you into my land. I'm going to dwell with you. You're going to dwell with me. You're going to be God's, you're going to be my people in my place, in my presence forever. And why did God do this? Did he do it because the people of Israel were deserving? Did he do it because Abraham was believing? Is it because he knew that they would choose him? No. Because even after he initiates his covenant with them, they continuously run away from him. They continuously bring other idols into their worship, into their lives, and and try to get away with loving other things, other gods, more than the one true God, the great I am. Do you see the mirror that we're looking at again? He made them to believe by showing them his power, and he made them deserving 
through their faith in God's promise of a coming Messiah. That's the nation of Israel. Now think about us. God does the same with us. He chooses his people. He gives them grace and faith to turn from their sin and trust in him as their savior. He then calls them his people and promises to be their God. And he promises that he will dwell with them and will bring them to a land of promise, Revelation 21, 21. God is oper- God, God has one MO. He chooses undeserving and unbelieving people to be his people for his own glory. He did it with the nation of Israel, and he does it with the individuals who make up the church today. He chooses undeserving and unbelieving people to be his people for his own glory. God will save his people. All are undeserving, all are unbelieving until he works in their hearts to create faith. Why did you come to believe in God? Think about it. Why did you come to believe in God? It's because he initiated salvation in you. He moved towards someone who was undeserving and unbelieving. You didn't get saved because you deserved it. And you didn't get saved because you were naturally seeking God. If you were seeking God, it was because he was first seeking you. We love him because he first loved us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. If you're dead, you don't get alive in order to find life. If you're dead, you're dead, and God is the one who comes to us with life. And again, in, in Romans chapters 5 and 6, there's the, the scriptures are full. The scriptures all throughout are full. The scriptures are full of this. The scriptures are full of a God who has a world, a planet that's full of undeserving and unbelieving people. And he comes to them explaining, I am and I will, and everyone rejects. And he saves his people anyway. We, most of you already know how the end of the book of Exodus goes. It, it doesn't end here in chapter 6 with God saying, well, if you're not going to listen because of your hard hearts and your unbelief, then you know, I'll go find someone else. No. No, God, God is going to work to make those people who don't believe to believe. And he's going to work to make those people who are undeserving, deserving through Christ. See, none of us ever live a life that's worth um, the, uh, the forgiveness uh, of, of God. I apologize. I just looked at the time for the first time um, this morning. Um, I've been pretty excited about preaching this message. so, um, But I am done. Christian. See with the eyes of faith what God has done and is doing and will do for you. Unbeliever, see what Christ has done for you. Call upon him to be your Lord and Savior. He is a God who will save his people for his glory. Father, thank you for what we have seen clearly from your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would continue to glorify yourself by saving undeserving and unbelieving people. Use us to be witnesses of the good news of the gospel in our community, to take the truth of the gospel to undeserving and unbelieving people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to forego the final song. Matt, why don't you come up, and um, we'll, uh, we've got a family that's going to come and join our church this morning, and then you can close our service in prayer. I want to invite the Campbells on up. Last time I voted somebody in, if you remember, we voted them out. So that worked well for Doug. He didn't stay long. So I'll try not to do that with you guys today. While they're coming up, I do have a quick announcement. Uh, Lydia's going to meet everyone in the foyer here in a little bit with stacks of flyers for the uh, for the coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, this, these flyers are not for you. They're for